Hello, everybody. This is Bill Knauer, and you're listening to Author to Author, where we talk about writing and life, because what it takes to write the book you want to write is also what it takes to lead the life you want to lead. Author to Author is brought to you by Author Magazine, premier free writing magazine on the Internet, featuring articles on writing and the writing life, as well as video interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors across the genres, all kinds of writers. In fact, right now, I've got a conversation I had up there with um, Elise Hooper, first-time historical novelist, lovely person, interesting person, quite a journey she took to her first novel. Check it out. It's there at authormagazine.org. Of course, we're funded by the wonderful Pacific Northwest Writers Association, supporting writers from pen to publication since 1955. Uh, PNWA does all kinds of great stuff. They offer classes during the year. Uh, We have a monthly meeting where some person, writer, or publishing professional comes and talks to the members. And if you can't make that meeting, if you're not able to get to the meeting, or you live in another part of the country, not to fear. If you're a member of the PNWA, you can listen to that online. So if you are a writer, I highly recommend you joining the PNWA, and you can do so at pnwa.org, pnwa.org. Well, today I'm very pleased... Uh, Josh, our guest, Josh Dean, was supposed to be on the show a month and a half ago, but things went haywire. But, God, I was going to bring him back, and I didn't. I'm glad I did. Josh, uh, well, Josh has done a lot of things. He was the editor. He was an editor at various magazines, but most recently Men's Journal, where he was the deputy editor until 2004 when he left to write full-time. Good for him. But over the years, he has written for dozens of national magazines, including – you ready? Rolling Stone, Popular Science, Men's Journal, GQ, Travel Leisure, New York Entertainment Inc., uh, Weekly, Inc., Fast Company, Men's Health, Runner's World, and Outside, where he is currently a correspondent. Uh, he's also, uh, we believe, the only person in history to play in both the Elephant Polo World Championships and the Kidditch World Cup. Quite an accomplishment. But he's also an author of books, two books to be exact, Show Dog, and most recently, very good book, The Taking of K. 129, how the CIA used Howard Hughes to steal a Russian sub in the most daring covert operation in history. Daring indeed. Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. Well, Josh, congratulations first on this book. Quite a uh, quite an undertaking in reading it. I just, the writer in me said, good criminy, what a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> that shows you what I think of research. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna get to that in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> we're gonna get to that in a minute. You, this, uh, I listed off all your many, many places you've been published and where you've worked. Did you, um, did you ever work in newspapers? Or did you go straight into magazines? No, I went straight into magazines. I'm one of those people who sort of got the the, the narrative long form bug early. I mean, before I was ready for it, but you know, just, I had some exposure in college to writing long stories and sort of thought, yeah, that's what I want to do. Even though I did work right. on my, my campus newspaper and I've written for newspapers, but I, I was, I knew magazines were my thing from the beginning. You, now, so let me ask you this. This is very important for writers, I believe, and I can speak from experience because it took me a while to find what I really like to do. And I, I didn't really have success until I did that. And, and, you know, there's a lot of things one can write. How did you know long form was your thing? What was it about it that just that worked for you as opposed to the short, you know, quick on assignment pieces? 
Well, the first thing I liked, I mean, it all happened in college, but the first thing I realized I liked, I had been doing like, you know, newspaper, campus newspaper reporting and like doing sports, which I loved. But then I started writing a column for the newspaper and it allowed me to use voice. And I was like, hey, this is something, this is different. You know, this is like writing about things that I care about in a freer and more loose style. And then I took a magazine writing class and I was able to kind of apply some of the techniques from that like column writing into actual reporting and, and narrative writing. And it was sort of like, Oh, this, this is nice. It feels like some of the, 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 the great parts of journalism plus a little bit of sort of fiction writing. And, and I didn't really yeah. aspire to write fiction and I still don't, but I like some things about the freedom of fiction. Yeah. You know, the thing about long, I briefly considered going into journalism and I thought it will never be traditional journalism. If I did it, it would, I knew it would have been long form too, because in the long form pieces, you do get to, you get to, you, the author, get to make a little bit more of an appearance than you can in just straight up reporting. Absolutely, yeah. So it's, I mean, in some cases, it's, it's a, you know, very obvious upfront appearance, as in like first person. I do that sometimes, right. but I try not, I try not to do it too much. But yeah, yeah, you can, you know, you can mess around with the format, the style, the structure, the, you know, there's, there's much. Um, less of a convention on, you know, where the, where things have to appear. And um, it just is a lot more fun. Not, which is not to say that all long form becomes like an experiment in like free play writing exercise. I mean, I've written some very straightforward journalistic narratives, but there are cases where voice is welcome. And and the nice thing about what we've come to call long form is that you can really kind of screw around a little. Well, as much as your editor allows you to. Right. Uh, but the thing about um, the the journal the, the nonfiction narr- narrative writers that I know and I know a bunch of them is you got to find the story the story the story right you got to find a like you've got to find a coherent narrative arc within whatever you're doing not just presenting right. a bunch of facts um, whether it's there or not kind of do you ever do you find yourself having to sort of construct it to some degree sometimes or do you feel it just naturally falls in. Well, I find when you're laboring a lot, when you do have to construct it, or when I go through what seems to be um, too many drafts, it's usually because the reporting wasn't there. I think one thing we often forget about with long form, or people just think, oh, it's long stories, it's fun, it's like a lot of words. The reporting is still so key to what you're doing, because you have to, like you just right. said, have a narrative, you have to have a story there. And I think you can sometimes fool yourself into thinking you can write your way around a story that's not quite there, but an editor is always going to call you out on it. And and I find, you know, having done this now for however long, 15 or 20 years, I know in my heart of hearts, sometimes I'll send in a draft and be like, Oh, I think maybe I got it, but I actually know. It's like, I know what I'm going to hear back. The editor's going to say like, you didn't get enough or like try this again because the story's not here. Yeah. Yeah. So you're starting to have, that's the, all writers go through that. Well, I should say I go through that. And most of the writers I know, which is that voice where you, that we don't listen to when we know we didn't get it, when we know we didn't get yep. the sentence, the scene, but that, that we're just like, ah, oh, maybe, maybe this time I'm wrong, but we never are. are we? 
It, no. I mean, I think occasionally it, it must happen, and probably it has happened in my career, but 95, 99% of the time, that voice is right. And for whatever reason, you don't want to listen to it. Usually the reason is, like, my deadline was last week, and I, and I need right. the money, and I have, I have to turn story in. Like, right. But if we're, being on, if we're being honest, you know, and, and the nice thing about editors, it, you know, and it, when you have a relationship with an editor, you can sometimes get away with that. You can send it in and say, hey, I know I don't have it yet, but I could use a little guidance here. Like, tell me where I'm whiffing. And right. That, that, doesn't work, that doesn't work as well as your first time or if you're submitting blindly. So I would tell any writer listening that, like, the voice is usually right. You should heed it. At least let somebody else take a look maybe before you send it into your editor. <laughs> let me ask you this. Someone who's done a lot of these pieces uh, before you – when was Show Dog published? That was your first book. Well, that was your first book, right? <laughs> That was, yeah. Uh, 2011, I think. Okay. Pretty sure it was 2011. Yeah, I know how that goes. You've got to forget. But before that, you'd written a lot of these, a lot of, a lot of long-form stuff. And so you must have developed a aesthetic and a beliefs about kind of what works and what doesn't. When, you, when you're reading other magazines, uh, assuming you do let yourself read other people, but when you do, I what do. is the thing that you, you, when you read other writers, that drives you the crazy, that drives you the most crazy in other long form writers? Where you think, where you see consistently that you wish other people didn't do? Well, I mean, overwriting. What you consider a mistake, let me say that. I would say overwriting is, and there are shades of gray on this, but for me, right. Too much of too much voice, too much of the writer, too much first person. I mean, there are cases where, like, you know, I don't know, a travel piece or where you're accompanying someone on some adventure, first person is pretty important. I think we've become a, there's, a, there's the internet has become a real essayistic me first um, revolution yeah. in writing where, like, everybody yeah. feels like they need to be at the center of the story. You've you got to know when to get out of the way. And I think a lot of writers don't know when to, and I, I should say I fall victim to that sometimes. There have definitely been cases where I've sent in a story and the editor has been like, you don't need to be in this story or like back off a little bit. But I think right. the internet has made, made everybody a blogger and then everybody an essayist. And I think yep. it's, heralded, it's heralded in a golden era of essay. You know, I think there's some amazing stuff, but it, but it also means everybody's really self-indulgent and nobody thinks that, you know, that they should be um, in the background. So that's one thing for sure. It's, it's too much, too much me. One thing I've learned, I write personal essays, kind of what I love to do. It's my thing. And one thing I've learned about it, it's a cousin of the memoir, really, I think, and um, a close cousin of the memoir. One of the things I've learned is that even though I am the protagonist, you know, generally speaking, of the story, I, it can't be about me. I have to just be using me to share something of value with the audience. Does that make right. sense? It, it, I'm just a character does, I, in it. Exactly. And I think too many people try and make themselves, whether intentionally or not, the entire prism of the story becomes like that person's experience or that person's view on the, you know, sometimes, yeah, you know, like you said, you're the, you're, you're the vessel, but you're not the like primary um, driver of the argument, you know, the, I don't know, whatever the, 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 you're looking through your glasses, but your brain doesn't necessarily always have to be contributing, you know? No. No, I agree. It's a tricky thing to do, but I, I learned that when it stops being about me, that's when I could write about my own life. <laughs> Interesting. That's when I could actually use it as material as opposed to uh, just people hearing my woes, you know. Yeah, um, and I think to, to bring, to, just to quickly bring that back to your question, so that's yeah. like, that same problem applies in long form. In fact, in essays, obviously, the person 
should be fairly present in long form often they shouldn't be or they should be in a very uh, tactful strategic way so that's the thing i probably yeah. get most tired of seeing yeah i get tired of it too i you wrote for gq i used to I used to have a subscription to gq and i got i found that they would tend to do that a bit more than i because they had such skilled writers they had such um you know agile writers that i think they yeah. just enjoyed themselves a little too much sometimes I you know, think. I'm a longtime subscriber, and I think I think Jim Nelson's one of the best editors in the business. But they, there certainly is a real freedom for voice and indulgence there, which almost always pays off. But I can see where, for some people, it may be too much. Um, it was years ago, actually, but my subscription was in the 90s, so <laughs> things oh, may have changed. Okay. Speaking. But the most recent book, The Taking of K129, you are not a part of that book uh but so first of all let's just quickly give um we'll give our listeners just a brief summary of this book uh i want you to do that you'll you could do it better than me i'm sure okay so so the the uh, the book involves um what, what is probably the largest covert operation in the history of the cia i say probably because it's not like there's a a rankings or a spreadsheet that they send out of Langley every month <laughs> or every year where it's like, okay, it's now number three. But it, we, right. it, it certainly it was, if not the most, if not almost the most expensive, the most expensive. So anyway, the Soviet Union um, lost a nuclear ballistic missile submarine in 1968. Uh, it sank um, on, a, on a routine combat patrol, and they lost it in a very remote part of the Pacific where you say, how could you lose a submarine? Well, it's actually pretty easy. We're seeing it right now. I mean, look what's yeah. happening with the AR, ARA San Juan. I thought it, of that it, when I saw, thought of you. It, it turns out to be very hard. You know, submarines aren't in constant communication, and the ocean is very deep. And where I think where the San yep. Juan is, it's like 9,000 feet. Well, where the, the Soviet submarine K129 sank was 16,700 feet, so three right. miles wow. down. Wow. So basically, they lost it. The U.S. Navy located it, uh, and and thus began a top secret, incredibly covert plot run by the CIA to salvage the submarine using a cover yep. story that that Howard Hughes was mining the ocean. <laughs> it's just great. <laughs> and so, my so my first question to you is: so you know, your first book was Show Dog, and so you took a little <laughs> bit of a. It's not like you built on that. <laughs> To then do nope. the taking of one K129. Um, so, first of all, when did you? You know, it's interesting. My 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 stepfather, who's an octogenarian history buff, had actually heard of the of this this uh, thing before before I described the book I was reading to him. So I guess this was floating around, you know, a little bit. Uh, how did you come across the story of it, and how did you think that's something I got to write about? So it's a it's kind of a legend. A popular legend within the intelligence community. I haven't written about spies, but I'm sort of fascinated by them. Uh, I've got family mm-hmm. ties to the agency, and it's, it's a personal. It's like an itch I've never scratched before. And this is a story that um, it, it, the, the operation ultimately leaked into the media, and then was subsequently buried by the CIA and, and never discussed again. They didn't declassify any of it until 2011. So. It became wow. it was like sort of known, and then it became a secret. It, but enough of it had gotten out there that people were aware of it. And if you were into intelligence, you kind of knew about it, but you maybe didn't know that much about it. So it was always just one of these things. That, I I don't remember where I'd heard about it, but I knew about. It. I knew the broad strokes. I knew that the CIA tried okay. to steal a submarine, and Howard Hughes was somehow involved. 
And and, um, and so you you knew that much. But what and when at what point do you think did you sort of start researching it casually, or did you or did you decide pretty early on? No, I'm going for this. I want to write it. Well, this is a, this this is a writer's podcast. So here's a good instructive story. I mean, the way it happened was actually. <laughs> Um, I, I had written a proposal for another book that I was going to write. Uh, so let me backtrack one step. I wrote a, okay. a piece for the Atavis, sort of a, a long magazine story, a short book about a gang of Canadian bank robbers called the Stopwatch Gang. And while reporting that, I had fell into the rabbit hole of the FBI archives. There's like a treasure trove of stories in the digital archives of the FBI. So I just spent days reading about these old escapades. And I found right. the story of the first undercover operation in the history of the FBI, which was a, a um, they went undercover on an Indian reservation in the Midwest to uncover a murder conspiracy to get oil rights from the Osage Indians. Now, I don't know if wow. any of that sounds familiar, sounds familiar to you, but it probably does to some people because that is the subject of David Graham's current smash best-selling book, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. So, oh, wow. Wow. I wrote – I wrote a proposal and I sent it. My agent sent it out, and um, we immediately got a lot of good feedback. And, and then the next morning, um, Grand's publisher called my agent and said, "Hey, I got some bad news for you. Uh, that's the book that David is writing." Um, oh. and, and he never talked. We didn't announce it publicly, and he's been doing it for three years. So you know, you might want to consider that. So of course, my agent calls me, and I'm like, "Well, that's it." You know, not only is he right. arguably the best, the best narrative nonfiction writer in America, he has a three-year head start. So much for that idea. <laughs> so you know, I'm 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 just like gutted and heartbroken, and you know, because I thought right. like this is an incredible story, and no one, literally, no one had done it. It was like, how did this slip to the cracks of history? Um, but my agent, to his credit, you know, he said, like, don't wallow. People really liked that proposal. What else you got, basically? So I took a couple days, and I just I like kind of sat around and like, okay, what else do I have? And, and like, this popped back into my head. Oh, Project Zorian. There's that crazy Howard Hughes CIA story. And I did what I do with magazine stories, which is I went and pulled everything I could find about it that had been written to see if there was a niche there. And there had been some chapters and books and a couple books that felt like they focused on one particular piece of it or another. But I decided that like the definitive version, the sort of A to Z narrative hadn't been done. And so I wrote up a proposal and we sold it pretty soon after. That's awesome. And so, but then, then began, then began the work on the book and that had to be considerable. Right. Well, it's, yeah, you sell the book and you're like, oh, right, that's awesome. They're going to give me a bunch of money. Oh, now oh, i got to go learn about now, Russian spies and Russian subs. book. Yeah, <laughs> and to be, to be honest with you, and I think this is true of a lot of cases, um, you know, you sell a book that you think you can write, but you're not totally sure that you can deliver sure. what you you sort of have to overpromise because you're like, oh yeah, it's yep. going to be the definitive, definitive narrative. But I don't know at that point that like all the people are going to talk to me, for instance. But I know that <laughs> I, I knew I knew that the the broad strokes of the story had been declassified in a pretty heavily redacted CIA history, so I could kind of build the framework around that and some of the existing. But I felt that the way I was going to be able to do it, the model in my mind was kind of boys in the boat was, was the story huh? of the people who took part in it. So I was going to need yeah, to go yeah. out and convince retired spies to talk to me and contractors. And so that's what really, for the three years I worked on it, the, 
vast majority of the work was hunting down retired spies and contractors and convincing them to talk to me. And uh, that's fascinating because, you know, every, like I said, every narrative nonfiction writer I know, it's finding a character, it's finding you've got to have a character, you've got to have characters, you've got to have characters. Um, it's not a novel, but it has to have that cinematic element to it. It can't just be well, a list yeah, of think, facts. And I think that's the difference between, and I don't mean this, my father is a historian, so I don't mean this as a slam of historians at all, but it's right. kind of the difference between history done by journalists and history done by historians is that, they're not, they're not doing it for a popular audience, so the, they're just trying to get history right. And it can be a right. succession of facts, facts and no voices. Whereas for us, we were, we were taught and reared to be telling stories that make people want to read about things that they might not otherwise want to read about. I mean, that's kind of the definition right. of journalism, inform, informing the public in a way that makes the, the, the material compelling. So um, whereas you could write a history of this that would be very dry and it would cover the facts, the way that it's going to come to life is through the people. So I, yeah, I needed to right. find the people. And I've, I've been asked by some you know, journalism students in school, like what, what advice would you give for people who want to write historical narratives? And my first piece of advice is write about a story where the people are still alive. <laughs> because and how I'm many of them were still alive? I mean, I, I don't know the exact number, but, I mean, several dozen I interviewed. I mean, probably more than that, actually. But I would say right. key, integral source characters for me, there are kind of five or six key characters and then maybe sort of 10 to 15 ancillary characters. Um, right. So I would say 20, like, very important sources and then probably another 20 to 30 who, like, provided little parts of scenes, for instance. And then... You know, because parts of this had been declassified, other people had written about it. There were tons of news, newspaper stories about the cover story, about the mining part of it. Uh, I, you know, it, it right. becomes like a quilt. So the through line, the narrative is, is the voices, but then you fill in all the other data and color around it with the um, secondary sources. And uh, how willing to talk to uh, a writer are ex are retired spies? How eager are they to tell their stories? <laughs> It depends who they are. Uh, some of them yeah. surprisingly quite eager. But, you know, I, so I went about it. I had a very good contact at the CIA who got me a meeting very early with the public affairs office. So they were friendly to me. In fact, they were um, – I don't want to say they endorsed the book because they don't endorse anything. But they did say they were happy right. I was doing it because they thought it was a worthy project. Now, they weren't right. then going to go and, like, find sources for me. But what I was able to tell people was, hey – the CIA is not standing in my way. Now contrast that to like, let's say trying to write about the drone program or something where it's like, they're very actively right. going to discourage people from talking to you about the drone program. Whereas in this case, I could say, if it makes you more comfortable, call some of your friends, call the CIA. You can check on me. I'm like, not some muckraker, at least at this moment. Uh, <laughs> and then, but, but I think the most valuable thing is you develop trust with a few people. So the first you know, you a few people open right. the door, you spend time with them, they talk to you. And I say this to every student ever that, like, the thing about humans is that they like to tell stories and they like to be heard. And if you can yep. get across from somebody, even if that person says they don't want to talk to you, give it five or ten minutes and I guarantee you they're, they're not, then they won't yep. stop talking. It happens in almost yep. every case. So. I would establish trust with someone. They would tell me a story that I would get kind of excited rem reminiscing. And then they would say, Hey, my friend what was this. You want me to put in a call for you? And, and it kind of becomes like a phone tree where that person vouches for you to that person and that person. And then next thing you know, you've got a whole 
tree of apples. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's a good point about listening. People um, think about interviewing people, whether it's something like this, but also, but more to the point with what you're describing is most people are not, don't have the experience of someone sitting down across from them and say, tell me about your life. Tell me about the things you did. Fill it all in. It doesn't happen. Usually there's a lot of people filled with stories that not always are wanting to be heard. It's a very flattering experience, actually. And it's one that you're not going to have very often in your life. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that people, once they had a, once they had a really willing uh, audience, were could found themselves talking and talking. Right. I mean, I feel like I, I hear people ask me and hear ask other journalists that all the time. They're like, "Why would that person talk to you?" I'm like, "Well, I mean, think about when you're at a cocktail party and somebody comes up and says, like, tell me about your life. Like, what's the thing that you're working on?' It's like, it's like." If it's something you've been talking about over and over again when you're on a book tour, you might get annoyed with it. But generally, it's kind of flattering. You're like, oh, they're coming. But I, and if you're a person who contributed to one piece of an operation 40 years ago, who you've never been able to talk about it before, um, because yep. it was secret, may, maybe, or also maybe just because nobody asked you, like, you're going to suddenly feel like, this is cool. And then the, the memories come back to them, and they start, like, remembering anecdotes. And then a good journalist is able to elicit more and more of them and, and help them pull back details. and It becomes like fun for, for them, I think. And in the case of these guys, this happened 40 years ago. It's not really sensitive anymore. Even if they haven't been told they can explicitly talk about it, they pretty much know they're not going to jail to talk for right. talking to me about Project Zorian. And uh, now, was there ever a moment in the writing of this book where you thought, Oh God! I am not going to be able to pull this thing together. This is just a sprawling octopus of a project. Or did you feel pretty early on, like, yeah, I can find the thread for this? Well, there's kind of two answers to that. One was, I mean, I always knew I could. Like, I, the narrative was clear to me. I knew where it started, the middle, I knew the end. Like, and I felt like I had so much information that I, that I could fill it in. But yeah, definitely. I mean, this happens to me with magazine stories. To be honest, like, there will come a time in every story when I'm like looking at a stack of 10 folders and like 50 transcripts on my laptop. And I'm like, how am I going to turn this into a like <laughs> coherent narrative? Now magnify that by 50. And that's a book. I mean, I've got my office today. I've got a bookshelf with probably a hundred books on it that I use. I've got filing cabinets filled with news clips and I've got stacks of interviews on my desk. And I'm like, how did I do? I don't, it's almost like you go into a trance <laughs> at some point. You're like, like, and I wish, I could say over time that, like, I don't panic every time, but I still do. And, I, you know, I guess I come out the other side in almost every case having succeeded. But, yeah, I, I fully freak out and think, like, God, I, I, like, I can't see the forest for the trees. I think it's part of what keeps it interesting, Josh. I do. I think it's the, it's the mountain that is so high, which makes us kind of want to keep climbing almost. You know? Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, and I go back now, and I'm—I'll be searching for an email for some reason, and I'll find an email I sent to someone in like two years ago today, like November of 2015, and it will right. be like, "Hey, I'm—I'm I'm Josh Dean. I'm working on this book," and I'm thinking, like, that seems impossible to me. Like two years ago, I was just like <laughs> assembling stuff that, that I could be in this position now with a finished book on my desk, talking about it. Like, if you—if I could go back and, and whisper in that kid's ear, he would be like, "No way." No, <laughs> like, like you, you actually got to the top of the mountain. Yeah, but, you know, yeah, you, you do. But if you see, but you know what it is? 
when you're you you're the best ignorance is your friend. If you knew just how much you had to do to finish it, you might not do it. It's the just the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. That's what allows you to finish when it, if you had to see the whole scope of the work it's in one swath, you you might not want to do it. I think isn't that what they say about parenting? Is that both both for the mother yeah. and physical the physical pain and both parents for the psychological torture that like you kind of you forget those first two years because otherwise you don't oh, do yeah. it again. And, and I think books <laughs> are like that. You're like like if, if like six months ago when I was finally you know trying to work through the final race stretch of the manuscript, if you'd ask me like what are you gonna do next, I'd be like, Well, it's certainly not gonna be a book. <laughs> but, but now, now I'm thinking, yeah, why not? That wasn't so bad. Yeah, why not? So bad. Uh, yeah. I'll have another <laughs> I'll have another kid, why not? <laughs> well, Josh, this has been a very interesting conversation, but I am not done with you just yet. Not just yet. Uh, I have one more question. What I'd like you to do is finish this sentence for me. If writing has taught you anything, it's taught you what? What has it taught you? Wow. Well, actually, what we've already talked about makes this easy for me, is that that everybody has a story to tell. I think that Mm. I've, I've, I've written about some of the most mundane things in the world than some of the most ridiculous, like the CIA operation that used Howard Hughes as a cover story. Like, I think that everyone's got an interesting story, and what makes my job fun and what makes writers' jobs fun is that, like, just when you think there's no news stories, there's always something. Like, I mean, oh. every day every day, the news surprises me again and gives me hope that, like, there's a future for all of us who write stories. <laughs> oh, there is never an end to stories. I love that. Everyone does that. It's absolutely true. Everybody does have a story to tell. And if you tell and, it right, you know, people, it's a good one. Yep. And people will tell you, like, oh, I'm boring. I have nothing. You know, I, I can tell you from experience yeah, yeah. with this book in particular, like, somebody would say, oh, I didn't do anything. My story wasn't. And, like, a couple hours later, I will have gotten some amazing <laughs> anecdote out of that person. <laughs> yeah. they just, you just have to give people the chance to talk. <laughs> I like it. I like it. All right, Josh. Well, listen, people can find you. What is your website? Quickly, where, where can they find you? Just joshdean.com. My website is joshdean.com. The book is the taking of one k129.com, or you know you can find the book on Amazon and all your major everywhere. Places. Everywhere. Bookstores. Go, Book to, a Go to a bookstore. It's Christmas time. Go to a bookstore. Oh, Josh, congratulations! It's a wonderful book, very engaging, and uh, I look forward to the next one. Thank you. This has been fun. I like to talk about writing. Right. Take it easy. All right. Thanks, Bill. Bye bye. Everybody does have a story, including you, my dear readers. You do. You have stories, whether you make them up or not. I will be back next week to talk about more writing. Until then, go out, find something you love, and do it!